I'm spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teaching host otherwise known as the Brain Brost. And don't forget to stay to the end of the show for Stories from the Road. We are back to, uh, well, I'm going to call it So I'm Dying Again because that is what the original post that caught my attention and has led me to get to know and now share with you this wonderful woman. She writes under the name of Portia. Sometimes we might make a mistake and call her Rochelle. She's okay with both, but um, the the Shakespearean flair of the family names is gorgeous, so I'm going to try for Portia. So, Portia, thank you, thank you so much for being willing to join us yet again. I'm sure it's a challenge with your uh, with your health the way it is. So let's start there. How are you feeling today? Um, I have had a pretty rough couple of days, but um, it's, 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 it's okay. It's bearable. It's just, it's frustrating because it's like um, there's so many things that you want to do and, and, and that you are not, not able to do when you're young and you're sick. And I'm always nervous, you know, sometimes I'll have a really, really, really good day. And I always get nervous when I have a good day because there's always this thought in the back of my mind, this fear of what if this day, this moment, this perfect moment is the last one that I will be able to enjoy because I'm hurting so badly. And and, and, and the frustrating thing about it is that you wouldn't know that that was the last good day because... For you, it's just a day where you can breathe and spend time with your family, maybe watch a movie or, I mean, it's you know obviously not running a marathon or anything awesome like that, but um, just doing normal life stuff. Um, when people ask me, how are you doing? And if I'm having a good day, I, I'm, I'm pretty straightforward. If I'm having a good day, I will tell them. But then there's always this thought in the back of my mind, like, what if that's the last time? I get to say that, and you know, you know it's that's scary. Interesting. Yeah, you know what it is. It's the cycle of abuse, and I'd never thought about that for that internal cycle of abuse of I'm, you know, I'm dying, or I have a, even sometimes in autism some of the sensory stuff that kids deal with. Sure. But it's that cycle of, you know, when you're in a situation where you're having a positive period, you know it won't last. And so you can't even enjoy the positive period because there's this little nervousness about how long will it last, when does it end, what does it mean, will it be the last good one, all of those things. And I hadn't really, I hadn't really taken my mind far enough out to realize that, that you would, of course, you would be stuck in a, a similar cycle. It is. It is really. It is really weird. And it. it yeah. You know, on one hand, you feel as though. Um, 
pain, in a way, pain demands to be felt, whether that's emotional pain or psychological pain, or in the case of our autistic kiddos, sensory pain. There's no way around feeling it. I mean, we have medications to help take the edge off, but it's still very much there. And so because the pain demands to be felt and, you know, it doesn't, you know, chronic illness never follows your Google calendar or whatever you use for your calendar ever. It's always, it picks its own days. It doesn't matter if it's a super important day or a super, a, a, a day when it's not super important, that would be a good day to be able to, you know, be sick all day. It usually tends, <laughs> it usually tends to pick the times when you need to be the strongest right. to make it, to make it be the, to, to make it be uh, the most challenging. So it's kind of a little bit frustrating. Um, and, you know, I worked really, really hard um to get strong, to get strong enough to be able to take care of my little boy. Part of the reason that, the only reason really that I stayed alive um, as long as I did, was because there was this nagging feeling in the back of my brain that just would never go away. That said, Cassius is going to need me. That's my son. He's going to need me. And Brutus, my husband, is not going to be able to handle it. He's just not. And up until that point, our uh, our son's autism, he's always fallen on the higher end of the spectrum, although I do believe that those labels are missed. But what's really interesting is about this time last year, I w- started to become strong enough that I could, um, you know, do get out of bed every day and do things every day. And I, I started driving again two or three months ago. And I, my driver's license had seriously expired for two full years. I was so afraid they were going to make me take the driver's test again, but they did not. But, um, yeah, no, I have worked really hard to get back to some level of functioning. Granted, it might be up for 20 minutes and then down for an hour and then up for 20 minutes. But I was being a mom in those 20 minutes that I could be up. And what's really crazy is, the exact same time that I got strong enough to accomplish this, my little boy entered into middle school and began to get pretty vigorously and violently, physically and emotionally bullied. Now, I honestly thought that my child was invincible. I mean, he'd watched his mother code four or five times. In fact, he participated in a one of those codes because it happened during a time when he was taking care of me. So for those of you, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second, honey. Uh, for those of you who didn't hear the first show, coding and aren't aware of the term coding, it means that she passed on. She died and then had to be brought back. Keep I was resuscitated. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, yeah, so I... I feel, um, I felt a false sense of security in regards to my child's emotional stamina. Mm -hmm. I honestly thought if he could be as strong as he was while 
we went through 28 months of his mother being on hospice that there was literally nothing that could bring him down. And I was wrong. I was, I was wrong. Um, within about six weeks of starting sixth grade, he started saying some things that really were huge red flags, things like, I have no value. I have no worth. I wish I'd never been born. Things that were really big red flags. Now, Brutus was not, uh, was kind of blowing it off like it was just a teenager thing, like a preteen thing. But I knew there was something more. I knew there was something going on that we didn't know about, and I was really, really worried about about Cassius. So I spent the entire school year um, fighting the school system last year to get him um, evaluated. Um, we went through a private autism uh, organization here locally, um, and they diagnosed him in January officially with um, autism type 1, which used to be Asperger's, but they changed it all, um, and ADHD, which we, I have known as his mother, those two things were true since he was really little. But his father has always been in, in pretty significant denial. And so I worked really hard last year, worked extraordinarily hard, and was so, I mean, the local school system was so unsupportive. And because, unfortunately, because he's higher functioning, his needs for accommodation were getting ignored. They would just say, his grades are okay, but I couldn't even get him dressed in the morning because when you have, I, I, the only thing I can use to describe it is that autism by itself, especially, um, you know, when you're talking about um, kids that have been lab labeled um, as, you know, higher functioning. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad diagnosis. It's not a illness. No, it's it's not anything like it's that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, you know, different, not less is what I like to say. Different, not less. But the, and, one, of the, one of the ironies, though, when you're higher functioning autistic is you tend to be um, much more sensitive. Yes. And not thick-skinned. So it's it's one thing to yep. be thick-skinned with a situation that life is just dealing you. It's another thing to be thick-skinned when you're being un unaccepted by peers, treated yep. a certain way, judged by by teachers. There's a yep. sensitivity. I used to call, I used to diagnose myself when I was young, and I called it hyper-emotional because I couldn't think of a way to explain right. that I felt everybody's th feelings. And, um, I, believe, I I see that a lot in my I see that a lot in in my son as far as feeling other people's feelings, and so when the kids started to bully him, he began to regret. And by the time, you know, fighting for an IEP for a higher functioning child, especially here in Florida where they don't have any funding, is very very hard. We ended up having to hire an advocate and then hire an attorney. Um, they pushed him in front of a moving bus. Um, they, I mean, they they were extraordinarily horrific to him. And I watched him within 
uh, the, over the course of the year, regressed from functioning, you know, a couple years behind his peers. He certainly wasn't emotionally as mature as the other sixth graders. Um, he would migrate. If you put him in a crowd of kids, he would want to hang out with the six- and seven-year-olds because that's developmentally where he fit in the best, even though he's, you know, bigger than them physically. That was kind of like emotionally or developmentally where he was at. I watched him uh, go from there to literally by the time the month of May, I couldn't even get him dressed in the morning. He was so terrified to go to school. I couldn't even get him, I couldn't even get clothes on him. And he would have these, you know, huge meltdowns and tons of sensory issues. And he just, he just fell apart. And my husband had no idea what to do. But I had been working so hard to try to get him evaluated and get service, services started. And I thought to myself, you know, all that fighting was because of this, because this was right around the corner. This transition to middle school where my son was, would soon become suicidal, this is what I lived for. This is what I fought for. This is what I, my mother's intuition told me was going to happen. And as soon as I got strong enough to be able to contribute to the family workload, all of a sudden my full-time job became advocating for him. And um, I was so successful that I have him now placed in a um, very specific school that is for high-functioning um, autistic kids like Christian. But by the end of the school year, when they finish their evaluation, you know, they do, like, tons and tons and tons of these tests. Like, the final report is, like, 35 pages long. And in many areas, he was functioning developmentally on the level of about a 19-month-old child. Like, he went from being completely verbal and very professor-like and formal with his, with, his, with his talk to not talking at all. And so what, you know, if, if I had not been there, if I had not been there, there's no way that... Um, that Brutus could have handled it. There's just no way. He still, he, I mean, even, even now, he has a very difficult time with Christian's autism, especially when it comes to the anxiety. Like, the autism itself isn't bad, but when you take anxiety and add it to autism, it makes all of the, it's like pouring gas on a fire. It makes all of the symptoms that are a little bit frustrating, all the social interactions, the, the, the negative parts, um, the challenges that parents complain about, I oftentimes feel they're more anxiety-related than autism-related because the anxiety will literally make their – it seems, at least with my kiddo, it seems that the, if, he's, if he gets very anxious about a situation – his thinking becomes much more rigid. His um, sensory issues go into overdrive. Well, and you know, um, Portia, so when you have ex stress, um, the brain is set up to cushion you from that stress by, you know, firing differently. 
And part of that is to make it so that you don't have as much cognitive skill. You don't have, like, it just reroutes where the, um, where the attention's going in the brain and what's firing. So what you're seeing on the outside is exactly representative of what happens to people when they're under a lot of stress or anxiety. You add autism where there's already stress and anxiety from within, like we we're talking about in that abuse cycle, and voila, everything you're saying is exactly what um, what they're always trying to examine and explain. So what I often I, what I often find myself trying to explain, you know, in my advocacy, because my website has evolved throughout the past several months based on this journey that we have embarked on. And um, one thing that I get a lot of comments on and a lot of questions about, and I try to explain to parents is that, you know, you might view your child's behavior as being, you know, oppositional. But really what's going on is they're not being oppositional on purpose. They want the situation resolved, whatever is making them anxious. They want it gone. They want to make it go away. And so they become very rigid about that, and that can lead into, you know, a temper tantrum, which then can lead into a meltdown or a meltdown that leads into a temper tantrum. Either way, you know, the kid falls apart. And and, and, and a lot of people don't realize it's usually not about what happened right before that event. For example, um, I bought a purse. We were on a trip, and we stopped at a truck stop. And I'm not a truck stop, you know. I'm not a truck. I do not typically shop for my clothing and or accessories. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anybody does. But I saw the cutest purse in the world at this at this at this gas station in the middle of Alabama, in the middle of a trip. And he had, we had been very straightforward. We planned, we'd done all the things that we needed to do to get him ready for this trip. And then halfway um, you know, halfway to our destination, we stopped to get gas and I bought a purse and he completely fell apart. So much so we had to pull off the side of the road because he was trying to jump out of a moving vehicle because he was so... He, he needed to get away so bad. He was so afraid of what was, um, you know, of, of, and it's not even his purse. It's my purse. It, he has no, no, there's nothing to do with my purse. But what had happened is the stress of packing and changing and everything had filled up his cup, his emotional, psychological cup of stressors. And that purse was just the drip of change that made the bucket full overflow right and I remember not understanding that at the time and being very because we were still very new at all of this and I remember thinking why on earth would he be so upset that I bought something that I bought myself a new purse and it was actually his autism team that explained to me it wasn't even about the purse it was about everything that had happened that day that led up to that event so um, I think that when it comes to It's, it can be difficult to separate, I'm, I, I know, and I hear this a lot from parents, you know, what is, you know, anxiety-related, what is 
depression related, what is ADHD related, what is autism related. And I think in a way there's a place in this circles kind of meet where our kid hangs out. But I think that for the most part, a lot of the symptoms um, that parents find the most frustrating when dealing with, you know, their their autistic kids are gravely uh, impacted by levels of anxiety and stress, which is why tragedy in any shape or form is uh, very, 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 very difficult on autistic kids. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'm not a professional. Um, all I can do is talk about, you know, my experience and what, what I did with, uh, my kiddo because luckily for me, I had time to prepare for this, but there are a lot of people that don't have time to prepare their kids for a sudden death in the family or, some major change that's coming down that that that's happening that nobody has any control over um or even the communication of when bullies are are changing yeah. how, the face of how they're doing so you are listening to a new spin on autism answers i'm lynette louise your story teacher host also known as the brain broad today is part two of a very special day we are speaking with Portia, who's talking about her journey with the challenge of being terminally ill for a very, very long time with a child who has autism, and uh, a husband from the services who's got a nice, clear-cut way of looking at things. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, so she's here to help us with um, the sharing of her journey. Be respectful, listen up. Don't forget to stay to the end of the show, where I will do stories from the road. And we are back with you. So I think that was a beautiful entry or exit and entry point to the mid-break. What do you do to prepare your child for something like your your eventual death? Like, how do you cope with that? Well, the first time around, I did it wrong. Um, But I also, at that time, didn't have the autism team support that I had. So the first time around what I tried to do is I, I tried to hide it as best I could. Like, um, everything's fine. You know, I tried. And I, looking back, I understand now why that was not the right thing to do. And then, you know, so, but initially, you know, before I got to the point where I was, like, hospice level six, I just kind of, I, I kind of hid it from him. In a way that you know, I I didn't I hadn't figured out what I was going to do yet, right. so I didn't I and I didn't have the heart, I didn't have the heart or the strength. I think it was actually a bit of self self preservation, maybe um, maybe like a bit of denial. I, I'm not sure really why, but the first time around, I did it wrong, and so then when I got really 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 sick really fast it kind of put him in a really tough spot. Um, But one of the things that's amazing about our kids is they have an ability to learn things in a way that other kids are not able to learn in such that he he actually showed me how he needed to deal with it 
Um, and we went with that approach the second time as well. And what he needed to do was he needed to learn everything he could about how to help me. There's nothing worse than having a, some, a loved one come to you with a problem and, and that is a major problem and not, ha- not being able to fix it, not being able to contribute it. That's, that's one of the most frustrating things. And I believe that the diseased person and dying person, as, as, as crazy as this sounds, has it way easier than the caregivers and the family, immediate family members of the people that they're leaving behind. Um, I feel that, um, you know, during, during the time when I was the sickest, uh, my eight-year-old at the time was able to, he memorized um, something like all of my meds, knew what counteracted with them, the class of medication, the type of medication. He knew my medication schedule. There was a period of time each day where he was taking care of me um, he would do, he took care of my IVs, he changed out my central line dressing, and, 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 and in all honesty, he did such a good job that under his care, I never got a central line infection. The only time I would ever get a central line infection was when I was in the hospital and they would not let, you know, an eight-year-old, you know, take, do the dressing changes and such. Um, so doing something is better than just telling them and just letting them sit with it. So this time around, um, when we found out, I think it was probably three or four weeks ago that um, I'm definitely dying again. Um, we, I couldn't, I, I wasn't strong enough that first day to tell him and I wasn't strong enough the second day to tell him. I had to, to process it myself first. And I was actually much more concerned about telling Brutus because telling the person that has spent the past, you know, four years wiping your butt and taking you to doctor's appointments and changing your diapers and bathing you and feeding you and that he's got to do it all over again, I was very nervous telling him what was going on. I was more nervous about that than I was telling, uh, telling, telling my autistic child. He actually took it probably of the three of us. He took it the hardest. My, my husband did, but I utilized my resources this time around and I wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. So I sat down with his autism team and I told them what was going on. And then I took his favorite therapist with me. And we sat down, and there was uh, a whiteboard, and I went back to what I knew Cash's notes, which is he knows, you know, basic anatomy, basic pharmacology. I explained the difference to him between cancer and Crohn's. I explained why certain medications tend to cause the other and vice versa. And I explained to him how um, the high dose of steroids, he already knew that I was in heart failure. Um, I had already, we had already told him that because of some of the medications they put me on. So what I, what we did is I walked him through the science of it. The very logical, I didn't cry. I didn't sh- really show any emotion because he is so empathetic. If I would have shown a lot of emotion, 
he would have fallen apart on me and I, I want, I needed him to be strong. So I wrote it out with a, you know, drew everything kind of on the little whiteboard, explained everything to him. When I got to the part where I said, so here's what we're going to do, here's the plan, he started to cry. And when he cried, and when he cries, his lower lip sticks out, like, and his lower, and his lower chin quivers, and he has these big, huge alligator tears, and it's very, very hard to look at. But I held myself together, and I told him the plan, which was biweekly chemo until either I succumb to infection or my liver gives out. And his response through those beautiful eyes was, Mom, are you sure I'm worth it? Oh, my God. And I told him, baby, if it bought me five more minutes with you, it would be worth it. That and more. And he said, okay. I said, do you have any questions for me? He said, no. I said, okay. Well, his, the, his autism team it actually runs the school that he is attending. So we had pulled him out of class for this. And I was a little nervous about sending him back to class after just getting this, you know, horrible news. When I got the news, I completely fell apart. Like, I couldn't even, like, I, I, I completely was a total disaster for about 48 hours um, after I got the news, um, mostly because I know what I'm up against, because I've done the chemo, I've done the radiation before, and I know what's coming. Mm-hmm. And what we had done in preparation for this meeting is we'd created a list of things for Cassius to do while I'm sick. Things like we need to be extra, you know, when you come home from school, there's going to be a basket by the front door. As soon as you get home, you're going to take your clothes off, put it in the basket, and you're going to go hop in the shower and scrub down really good. Um, If any of your classmates, which he's in a super small class, calls out sick, you need to let me know. Um, It doesn't, you know, obviously they can't release, you know, medical information, but they can tell me, his autism team as well, hey, listen, we've got a kid here with the flu, so you need to be careful. Um, you know, basically um, being supportive. Um, things like, you know, on a really bad day when I need to be quiet and left alone, to be quiet and leave me alone. Or if right. I want to sit and watch a certain show or if I need anything from him, he can bring it to me. We came up with a list of things that he can physically do to help. And it was typed up and it's typed up and laminated and it's, you know, in his room. And basically what that's for is it gives him something concrete to hold on to that is, that takes away the helpless feeling that so many caregivers suffer through when they're watching somebody suffer and there's literally nothing that they can do. And, I think that that in and of itself was a huge component of helping him learn to cope with it. But I have to tell you, when that little boy came, when I when that little boy got home from school, his dad asked him, "Hey, how was your day?" expecting expecting to hear, you know, about our conversation. 
And Christian was as happy as he's ever been. He wasn't upset. He said, I had a good day. We learned about this, 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 and this in school, and we played soccer, and we did this. And he is, he, he's able to compartmentalize things in a way that what he had learned from me was not enough to ruin or take away the joy of that day from him. And for me, to see him that strong and to see him that empowered and that in control of a situation that none of us have any control over gave me the strength to know that things are going to be okay. All of my work last year to get him out of the public school and into this um, private autism school, um, it paid off. It, I, I, I did what I needed to do. I knew he was going to need me. I hung in there. And sure enough, as soon as I got strong enough to actually be able to contribute, he needed me. And he needed me bad. He needed me to fight for him. And I did. And, you know, I feel right now my biggest concern, like I said, um, he has a great mental health team that is working with him and somebody that's working with him on uh, with all of his trauma. He has a lot of trauma from watching me in the hospital screaming in pain for hours and hours. We're talking like PTSD kind of trauma, like he has nightmares right. about it and things like that. So we've got um, those resources already set up. He's already, um, you know, receiving that kind of help. Um, we have uh, one thing we did not realize before, which I wish I would have known, was is that we were eligible through um, through our insurance for respite care. So. My biggest concern, my biggest challenge right now is preparing and trying to get as many services lined up and set up um, for my uh, for my husband to relieve the caregiver role strain that he's already under, but is going to get worse. So right now I'm, um, you know, looking and finding resources um, as per, you know, other people in the same situation, I, I always suggest. Um, make, you know, utilizing your family resources, you know, extended family first. If you're part of a local, you know, church, those resources are good. Um, you know, if you have a good autism team, utilize it. Um, and if you, if you, if you need respite care, which I think every, uh, autistic, every kid of a, every parent of an autistic kiddo can benefit from, even if it's just an hour or two here and there. Um, and then, you know, trying to get housekeeping, um, housework, support, things like that in place to kind of help relieve the stress of the primary caregiver, which will be my husband as I'm dying. Um, wow. I think the hardest thing, the hardest lesson for me to learn, um, has been that when I ask somebody for help, it's not, me admitting my weakness, it's, in fact, it's me being extra strong because I have this sense of pride. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can do it on my own. And most of the time I technically can, but the, the consequences 
of me attempting to do something that I should not do on my own, I pay very dearly for it later. So when I when I have when I when I have something that I need, if I pick up the phone and I call somebody, most of the time people unless they have something major going on, people will do whatever you ask or you need them to do because it blesses them. It makes them feel like again, there's something that they can do to help and it takes away that helpless feeling of watching, um, you know, of, of not being able to do anything and watching somebody suffer. Um, so when no, I it's huge. Say, it's huge. So when I say, hey, I, I, I really need help, can, it's not me being weak. It's me being strong. And that's one thing I am very have a hard time explaining to newly diagnosed, um, you know, ASD parents or even newly diagnosed um, terminal patients is there's this desire, well, I want to do as much as I can while I can. Well, that's true. You can, and, and, and there's something to be said for that. You, you don't want to just not do anything. However, we as a society have equated saying I need help with I am weak when the truth is it's one of the hardest things a person can actually say out loud is, can you help me? I need help. It, 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 it's painful for us to say that when it really, really doesn't need to be. It's a sign of somebody that's strong enough to say, listen, I need, I, I need somebody to come help me clean this bathroom. I mean, it could be something as simple as that. Um, right. Right. The things well, over the past couple of years that have meant the most to me, the, when I look back over everything, um, I had two of my friends um, show up in my hospital room after I'd been in the hospital for six weeks with a basket full of my favorite um, Bath and Body Works products, and they gave me a bath in oh my the God, hospital. Beautiful. And let me tell you that single act it took them an hour out of their day taught me more about love and compassion and understanding those are my two friends that got it you know um those are the and it's really the little things it's the little things that add up uh especially when you're talking caregiver role strain um it's really the little things you know, a meal, you know, brought by every now and then um, is a huge gift to give to somebody like Brutus who is taking care of, you know, an autistic 12-year-old and, you know, a hospice-level sick wife. Um, but in regards to, in regards to the, the, the kiddos, I think that Probably the best thing that you can do is to be straightforward, be honest, um, wait until you know you can tell them in a way that you're not going to completely fall apart. Because if they, because we as their parents are their source of security and stability. And if we are falling apart and saying it's not going to be okay, that causes a, 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 a got a lot of anxiety in the kids and then you know our 
our kids that tend to be catastrophic thinkers already right. delve into right. this right. world where, well, that happened and this is going to happen. Right. Then, you know, we're going right. to lose our house and, um, right. Right. you know, I won't have any food. I mean, they create this right. whole right. mindset that, and, and none of it is even remotely correct. It's just the way that they tend to process things. Right. So, so I think so. We're at the end of our show, okay. and I want to give you a chance to say one last thing, and then also, um, you know, share your your website again so that people can continue to follow your journey and learn from you because you have great words of wisdom. Sure. Um, I think probably the one thing I the one message that I would want to leave is that there is nothing a mother's love cannot overcome and cannot beat. I believe that we are strong, stronger than we have to be, stronger than we ever want to be when we have to be, and that when we, when something is very important to us, we can we can literally accomplish the impossible to make it happen. And I am grateful for um, my husband and my son, very grateful for them both. And I hope that um, our story helps to give people some perspective and some joy. And that's about it. Our website is... Uh, www.mypuzzlingpeace.com and that is all I've got. Well, that was great. Thank you so much for being willing to share and for taking so much of your time with us, part one and part two, and um, just your... Just your explanation on explaining alone could change the face of the experience for many, many people, so thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Wow. That is one brave lady. So Portia of my puzzling piece. She um she's awesome. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that. That if you were witness to her uh her way of surviving and dying and living uh, is an example to all of us. So really and truly Hope that you pass this show around and make sure that your friends hear it and people that need to be inspired hear it. And we just found a beautiful soul that is willing to help us make a difference in the world. It's not all about the diagnosis of autism. It's all about how we live and breathe and embrace the problems that we are faced with as we love on our people with autism. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and do stories from the road. But since I can't really top that story, and there was really no loose ends left for me to sort of tie up, I'm just going to make a little bit of sense of a couple of issues and give you a call to action. Because... As Portia said, we need to know what we can do to make a difference. And sometimes that applies in in our home to our children, but sometimes that applies out in the world. So there's a teeny little story here. I'm walking along with my friend, 
and uh, she's got a lot of money, and we're walking, and I'm trying to figure out how to do a particular fundraiser. And <clears throat> I've done many good things in the world via fundraisers, but this was early in the in the style of fundraising, and I was feeling kind of bad about it. You know, I'm asking people for money, and why would they give me money? And she said, well, first of all, they're not giving you money. They're giving money to the cause. And secondly, some of us want to participate in that way. For some of us, we don't have what you have. We're not going to get on an airplane and go in, into a, a you know very impoverished area or a war-torn area and, and try to help people. But we want to help. So just say this is an opportunity to participate in this way. And I was like, wow, wow, who knew that <laughs> that I'm not the only one who wants to to make a difference, that all the people want to make a difference. They just don't know how. Like this thought just dominoed out into my brain and went, look at people in this way and give them the opportunity to be a part of things. And everything changed from that moment forward. So that is exactly what um, Portia was saying when she was explaining to her son, give him an opportunity to be a part of her survival an opportunity to be a part of her um, her comfort, but let her be a part of it. Let him be a part of it. And I have this thing that I teach all the time in homes and, and writing and whatnot, and it's explain, explain, explain. It's the core of why the kids start to do what I ask them to do and, and become cooperative and helpful now sure i use neurofeedback that makes it much easier and strong it's very strong and very useful and and you know i use compliments so we shore up their ego but it's the explaining that gives them the information so if you are thinking that your child wouldn't understand trust me they just need you to treat them as if they do and explain to them. And that will reduce so much anxiety in your home. You don't have to be dying to find this out. All right. Or try, actually, I'm not sure we should call Portia dying. We should call her surviving again because she's again got herself a goal for how long she wants to survive and what she wants to do and who knows what will come in the in the middle of that journey. So I wanted to uh, also hit just for a second before we say goodbye is the cycle of grief and abuse and then I'm going to circle back around to what you can do to help other people so in the cycle of grief and abuse you do have that whole um, fear of the surprise fear of you know what's the unexpected thing that's going to happen and well look at the solution is explain 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 so you've just been gifted with something really gorgeous. You've been gifted with um, a woman telling a story from a very difficult place and showing you that if you take action when there's a problem, like move your child from one school to another, if you rise to the occasion, if you make make a difference in the moment, and if you explain, 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 everything will probably chug along just fine and kids will improve, and you will improve, and being being a family together will be a better experience. Um, everybody takes a role in a home. And even Brutus, <laughs> his role might be that he can't do it without her. Maybe that's his way of keeping her there. So um, we all take a role. Just examine your role 
And if change is necessary, action needs to be taken, you have to change your role first. All right? All right, I'm going to give you a chance to make a difference. It's not for someone who's um, got a terminal illness, but I am running another campaign for Fix It in Five. That's my show that's on the Autism Channel. It's on the Autism Channel because I spend all the money and I put it on the Autism Channel. No money comes to me from the Autism Channel. Um, No money goes to them at the Autism Channel from me. It's just a beautiful platform for me to get the the show out to people. That means that I've had to fundraise often with this to try to keep going. It really is a gorgeous show. The idea is that I go to five different families in different places around the world so that you see five different religious backgrounds, five different cultures, five different races, um, all dealing with autism and more. There's always got to be more than just uh, the autism diagnosis. So we've had autism and seizure, autism and Tourette's. And the one I'm fundraising for now to try and get us to Israel is a family with six children. There's several diagnoses in the home, one of them being autism. They're dealing with war and hiding sometimes in the bomb shelter. So you know, to imagine being in a circumstance like that and trying to work with, um, you know, your children's hypersensitivities and, and various issues and make progress. So we're going to try and make progress. I'll be there for five days to work with them, do some therapy, teach them how, and adjust myself accordingly for the environment. So please consider contributing. It's on Indiegogo. Fix It in 5 Israel is the one you want. Fix It in 5 Israel on the Indiegogo website. Please consider giving us any amount of money. It's totally, totally appreciated. And also sharing of the campaign and offering up of any skills you might have, especially if you're in Israel. You might want to be a cameraman. All right. Thank you so much for being here. You are listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Blaine, Brain Broad. The Blaine Broad. Yeah, that's me, the Blaine Broad. Um, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. And thank you for being here because without you, I'd just be talking to myself. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of A New Spin on Autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. I can't hear.